and welcome to season two of the Recruitment Leadership Podcast, hosted by Alison Humphreys. The Recruitment Leadership Podcast is here to help those in the recruitment industry gain awareness and understanding on the hot topics faced by those in the business of hiring people. In each episode, Alison Humphreys is joined by a fellow expert to offer professional knowledge, insight and advice on the biggest subjects affecting recruitment businesses. In this season, we're focusing on the fundamentals of financing your recruitment business, including the questions commonly asked and the different scenarios you and your business may find yourself in. It's the podcast to listen to for recruitment business frontrunners seeking expert information from industry-leading advisors. Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. So welcome to the second episode of season two of the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. Um, And I'm back with Nick Russell, the Commercial Sales Director of Sonovate, who is, I'm delighted, has agreed to talk to us today about the changes that we're seeing in the the recruitment market generally and in particular how they might affect your financing arrangements if you are a recruitment business owner or director. So this episode will be of interest I think to businesses of all sizes um, wherever you are on their kind of developmental curve. Nick, welcome. Um, Leaving aside the the B word, Brexit, We are in an environment where it looks like there's going to be increased regulation and of course in 2020 we've got the IR35 changes due to be rolled out in the private sector. Um, Now those had a major effect in the public sector, we can go into a bit more detail about that, but at very high level, what effects do you predict and how might funding be affected for recruiters? Um, morning as well, Alison. Thank you for having me here. Um, I, I I do think that IR35 will have an impact. Um, as you stated, uh, it clearly has in, in the public sector and, and we've seen this with, with clients of our own. Um, GDPR, I don't think, um, came with, with the effect that people predicted. Mm-hmm. I think there was a lot of hype and, and confusion and fear around GDPR. But I think really that that only related to the, the the really big corporates out there that it's affected. With IR35, um, albeit the legislation came out in, in 2000, didn't it? Mm. Um, I, I do think next April it will have an effect. Um, I, I think the agencies should seek legal advice. Um, I think they should not advise their contractors if asked without legal advice um, and you know, there's people um, if you want to contact me or, or obviously yourself Alison that we would recommend you speak to on that. Um, it'll be interesting to see what they do because the contractors are either going to have to start paying tax or NI or are they going to go via umbrella or PAYE solution or mm. or even sole trader maybe but then do they have as much protection? I, I wouldn't have thought they would do. Yeah. Okay so there are there are a, an alarming number of recruitment business owners, and I'm talking even quite substantial businesses that have uh, contractors out who are you know hundreds and even thousands of contractors in some cases who are actually putting people on outside IR35 arrangements now because the contractor tells them that they are outside IR35. Mm-hmm. Now, for any of our listeners who aren't aware. The IR35 status 
of a contract assignment is not decided by the contractor. It's decided by the facts of the assignment. So the same contractor can be inside IR35 on one assignment and outside it on another. Um, so I don't know if you agree with this, Nick, but one of the first practical steps I would suggest that people put in place now is to make sure that they have some kind of due diligence when they take the details of the assignment yeah. to check whether the person will be working under forms of supervision, direction and control. And my observation would be that a lot of, you know, even established businesses do not have anything like that at this point. Um, do you agree? Absolutely. They need, before the, the contract commences, absolute clarity of whether they lie in or outside of it. Mm, okay. And then you mentioned statement of works. So um, there's a lot of interest in this um, and uh, a lot of people thinking, well, I, I get the idea in theory, but how does it work in principle? Who's responsible for delivering on that statement of works? Um, how much do I need to know about what my contractor's doing? Am I the person responsible for completing? So how do we think this will affect uh, will affect financing of recruitment contracts, if at all? Um, I think it's already affecting it. So a lot of um, consultancies, um, slightly different to recruitment agencies, but in essence still providing manpower albeit it's treated as a project and they, they do a lot more research and work with the, the customer in depth um, mm -hmm. regarding what the, the, the project is, not just placing the, the contractors, so to speak. Work off Statement of Works or MSAs, Managed Service Agreements. Um, and a lot of the funders don't like this because there, there isn't that deliverable of a, a signed timesheet. Or if there is a signed timesheet, sometimes it's signed off by the contractor. So for example, um, recruitment leadership um, places 10 contractors on a statement of work so they call it a squad sometimes um, and they have different milestones that they have to hit over maybe a 12 month period and that's broken down quarterly um, and there'll be obviously fees associated to that which are, which is stipulated in the statement of works there may be a, a captain of the squad who signs off the timesheets, but in essence, that is a self-signatory. It's not the client who is signing off the signatory. The contractor is signing off his own timesheet. Mm -hmm. Now, the funders won't won't take that as, as sufficient sign-off because it's self-signatory, mm -hmm. um, and they don't like it. Um, Sonovate, um, we, we've done a lot of research into this, um, and assuming that we can get a authorization to, to invoice or um, evidence that that milestone has been reached to a satisfactory standard, um, then we will fund those invoices mm -hmm. um, because it's still for the provision of manpower. Um, but we just need to understand exactly what that looks like and when the milestone has been reached mm. um, and that there is a form of acknowledgement from the client that the work's been completed to a satisfactory standard. Indeed. And there's been a, a, uh, some case law recently in relation to defining statement of works and whether someone was actually outside IR35 where the language was was a significant factor so um, check, having a review of, of uh, recruitment agencies documentation makes sense doesn't it yeah. um, they should check that if they are claiming someone's outside IR35 the language isn't around timesheets and hours worked um, but around projects completed that a client can 
still sign off, an end client can still sign off, can't they, and say, this project has been completed by this date. Yeah, and, and the first thing that, that I do and Sonovate do is, is when we look to fund a, an agency or a consultancy that is working to a statement of works, we want to see that. We want to look through it. We want to see how pro prohibitive it is. And the agency should want to as well because these are quite comprehensive documents um, that basically are the, are the, the structure um, of, of work for that squad of 10 contractors for maybe the next 12 months. So they have to be watertight. They have to be um, robust as well. So we, we, we very much believe that we can fund those those statement of works, but the first thing that, that we would want to do, and the agency should, is absolutely going through it with a fine tooth comb and understanding where, where you lie, where the liability is, and mm. why they are in or outside of IR35. Thank you, okay. And so what about day rates versus hourly rates? In your view, is that going to be a, a a trend that of contractors being hired on day rates more going forward as an indication that they are um, not under supervision, direction and control? Yeah, or, or, or even more so kind of project rates. So these people are getting a, a fee to complete a project, but if they do it in a quicker time scale than anticipated, mm -hmm. um, then they would bill say £10,000 whether they do it in three weeks or four weeks so that then doesn't just remove from the hourly today rate but it's actually I can justify that it, that it is compliant because it's then project rate which would deem that you know they can't be seen as a an employee of the business can they because mm. they are a project provider mm. so I do think in answer to your question you'll definitely see a change from hourly to daily if not daily to Project. project based. Yes, yes, very good point. And of course, there's there's downs as as well as ups on that because clearly, if a project isn't delivered to the right standard, then someone who's genuinely outside IR35 has to make good at their own time and at their own expense. Well, there's that as well. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that then leads into whole other areas of protecting your business. So um, if, as expected, we do see this rollout, and remember, it applies to pretty much every private end user client other than those defined under Companies Act 2006 um, as small companies um, then it then begs the question about should business uh, recruitment business owners be reviewing things like their professional indemnity insurance um, employers public liability actually there's a lot of other insurances that people perhaps should be looking at key man insurance springs to mind um, cyber and data risks insurance. It, can you comment on on that? How prevalent are these in recruitment, in your view? Um, I think that they're prevalent, and I think the the IL thirty five, you know, twenty twenty introduction is a real good catalyst for agencies to review all these documents. The, these are often things that they take out at the beginning of their journey as a recruitment agency, and they don't review when they put it in that. Uh, folder or in that file that that drawer and it collects dust but they kind of know in the back of their mind that they have got their insurances and indemnities there I think this is a perfect time to go back to the market as well to seek professional advice um, and, and check that you are um, abiding to to all the legislations and that you are protected yourself as an agency and that your contractors who listen to the the extension of your agency let's 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 be real about that um, that they are covered as well um, key man insurance 
it's a it, it's a, a deep area that um, a lot of brokers sell it, um, but it, it can be it can be quite distorted in what it actually covers you for. Um, so I would I would say with any of these insurances or liability protections, it, you do your due diligence, and it's a good time to go back and and research into it. Mm, okay, so key man insurance can be particularly relevant if your business is completely dependent on a few key billers supported by a number of um, uh, of uh, other people who effectively provide, for example, resourcing or research services to them. Um, and if that person's long-term absence would seriously damage your business. So it might be that you're a micro business. It might also be that you're uh, a business that is um, looking to uh, grow or even go to market at some point and um, is very dependent on having continuity of those individuals and actually you can get it at a very low cost um, uh, ranging from about I don't know the quality of these products but ranging from about eight pounds per month per person right. um, so it's certainly worth looking into for even for some very small businesses I would suggest Nick you just made an interesting point so linking through the whole IR35 thing that um, an, a, a contractor who is outside IR35 must have their own professional indemnity insurance, mustn't they? Yes. Um, and typically, if clients and clients are imposing contracts on you, they will demand about a million pounds worth of cover. Uh, so it's not a question that's usually in our screening process for recruiters, but my recommendation is they should bring those screening processes in now. Um, and also keep your insurer up to date about what you're doing in your business. Um, I did have a, an example of a case where a small company, a small company that um, I was talking to had basically insured for a fixed sum, there was a limit on the cover, and they had simply failed to increase it as their business had grown. Um, and the repercussions of that, unfortunately, because they had a claim from an employee, were quite substantial um, and they weren't insured at the right level. Um, so it, go, going and having a look at your employers and public liability, the levels of it is really key. I think, I think also if you look at a, a recruitment company and its expenditure and overheads, you know, obviously all these tools help and assist, but they spend thousands on CRMs, on analytics, on finance companies, on incentives, all these things pay it for your insurance as well. You know, it, it's not going to be the most glamorous exercise of your life. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like looking through your margins at the end of the quarter and seeing what your, your EBIT and your NFI is, but it is something that protects your business. And if you have to pay more to protect yourself, then then do so, mm. um, because you would definitely do that with your with your clients. You know, you pay for insurance on your clients, etc. You want the most up-to-date analytics technology and CRMs. I think, like you say, for eight pounds per person, even if it costs more, it's definitely worth doing. Mm, thank you. Okay, right. So we touched earlier on GDPR, and um, the general consensus does seem to be that it hasn't, in the end, been quite such a disruptive um, piece of legislation um, as it was before the, the implementation day. In other words, it was one of these pieces of legislation where there was lots of rumours and, and horror stories about what could happen. But in fact, um, it hasn't really impacted too much on certainly those businesses who um, uh, who have chosen to roll out 
a decent system, clean up their databases in many cases very positively and get real engagement from candidates who, who are asked for consent. Um, however, what GDPR does do, of course, is um, massively increases the liability of anyone who has a data breach. So from a financing funding point of view, are there any impacts, insurance, that, you know, implications that you think business owners should be looking at if they haven't already done so? From a GDPR perspective? Well, just data breaches generally. It's something that we again have to be impartial to as to what we advise them to take out. Um, but I think a, a cleanse of your data, I think it's I think it's a really good exercise actually. Whilst it was a lot of scaremongery and I think there were people profiting from GDPR and mm. it's almost like the kind of the PPI world and there were people setting up GDPR claim companies I heard as well. Mm. So I think it all kind of unfolded, but what it did do is it, it made the agencies cleanse, as you say, consent and be compliant from a data perspective. Um, but I, I wasn't aware actually, Alison, that you could get protection um, on a GDPR uh, perspective. So do you mean if you do breach it and you and you don't comply? Yeah. So it's basically insurance to cover any data breach and any claims that that you know might be brought against you for a data breach. And while I, there obviously there's there's a a lot of checks and balances before people will give you those insurance policies. Um, are you aware of clients of yours taking them up? Uh, we have heard of it, and it's it's not something that, that as I said before, we advise on. But I think the the reason why people have done it is whilst they might cleanse their 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 database and they might act um, in in the right manner, they can't speak for all their staff and their consultants, and that is mm. the people who will make the the breach or the error, won't they? So I think to have a encompassing insurance over the business because you can't control what your staff will or won't do, will you? Um, especially as we know. In, in, in recruitment it can be quite a high turnover of, of staff as well and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. how loyal will they be to the business with regards to a data protection perspective so I think it's certainly something as with most insurances hopefully you'll never have to claim on it but it's there isn't it for, for when you need to. Yeah and a note to business owners um, and directors there that um, because of the particular way that recruitment industry works your consultants are carrying a lot of confidential data yeah. very often on their personal mobile phones um, or laptops that go out the office fair point Absolutely. and um, I've seen a lot of data protection policies in staff handbooks that simply don't address that situation um, so you would not have cover or a defense unless a you've got an up-to-date policy and b um, you've actually trained people in it and your policy, you know, policies and processes um, reflect are reflected in what goes on in real life. Um, so well worth having a look into that insurance. Up until now, the ICO, by its own admission, um, has largely taken an advisory approach, where small companies have been accused of data breaches. A lot of their focus has been on um, tech giants, yeah. the Facebooks and um, uh, and so forth of this world. Um, but eventually, they will get round to recruitment businesses. So if it's not something you've looked at previously, have a look at insurance now. Um, now, on a separate note, um, uh, a number of, of businesses have asked not about invoicing finance for temporary and contract workers, but for perm um, invoices. So I'm curious whether um, you think this is something that is becoming more widespread 
Why would a, a recruitment business owner want to finance their perm invoices, Nick? Again, there's no right or wrong um, as to why they would want to, but the, the simple answer is to, to access and leverage more cash from their debtor book. Mm. So your mainstream lenders will do on contract 85, 90% as a standard, Sonovate, as we know, or, or 100%. Um, which should suffice to run a recruitment company, you'd like to think. But some people either want to scale that quickly, um, that they want everything out of their invoices, including their, their perm invoices, or they might um, require that money to keep the business in existence. You know, They may have had um, failing quarters, or they may have had bad debts and they weren't insured for them. They may have um, HMRC um, obligations, or it might be that they just want to get their, their money out of the, the invoice and scale it into making more money. They might not actually be cash strapped, mm. but they see that asset. They want to, um, they see it as that it can be made um, into liquid form as in cash, and then they can get more staff in. They can get a new office. It's just, it's cash flow. So yeah. while some people try to avoid funding any invoice be it contract or perm and they want to self-finance and, and there are you know reasons to do that of course there's, there's no cost of finance being the obvious one um, a lot of people think that it's it's a benefit to have the ability to fund perm invoices should you want to mm. from a from a um, logistical perspective if you have a consultant who's dual desking so they're placing on both contract and perm and you're using a son of eight for example do you want to have to get them to pay the contract invoices to the you know, the Sonovate trust account and the perm invoices to the, the agency? Um, because again, you're saying to the accounts payable department, you have to pay two different accounts now mm. and they probably won't do it or they'll send the contract one to the perm and the perm to the contract right. and it becomes a nightmare. Secondly, if you do assign your perm invoices, um, then you would benefit from them being insured. So if you did unfortunately have a client who, who became insolvent, um, but you didn't assign your perm invoices, you would only be insured on the contract side and not, not the perm side. Oh, okay. And, th and thirdly, um, apart from obviously leveraging the cash from, from the perm invoices, uh, Sonovate, for example, conduct the credit control. So whilst you would have us credit controlling the contract invoices, you wouldn't have somebody doing that on the perm side. So a lot of people see it as a benefit that they can have it all covered under one roof mm. with the ability to draw down on it. Um, clearly you don't draw down at 100% mm -hmm. um, but if, if, if it's backed up we would normally prefer a perm invoices that are raised on commencement um, some people do raise them on acceptance which mm -hmm. again if there's controls around it it, it it can be funded but clearly you're more open to rebates then because they haven't even started work at this point and are they talking to other agencies about other roles you know mm -hmm. are they actually going to commence that role that they've accepted but yeah we do see and, and and i'm not sure why um but it's the larger agencies tend to fund their perm invoices the small or when i say small anything from new start um under say two or three million turnover i don't i don't personally seem to have a, a requirement for them to to fund their perm invoices mm -hmm. the larger ones i'm talking you know 15 20 30 40 million plus they they do and once you start funding your perm invoices, it's almost like a drug, you can get addicted to it because mm. you're used to, to leveraging that cash. Mm. Yes, that's a really good point. But what you're saying is that if there's very clear evidence that you can, by using the cash, for example, hire, a, uh, hire or gear up, 
in a fast-growing market, then that might be a justification. Absolutely. Mm, yeah, okay. you're, you're spinning your cash, aren't you? Interesting. Now, you mentioned credit control there. I'm just wondering if um, Sonovate staff, for example, are seeing any new trends in terms of delivering the service that they do, for example, with credit control, fee disputes, anything like that. So you mentioned about um, perm terms being based on acceptance or commencement. Um, are there any trends, changes that you're seeing at the moment? I'm seeing a lot more people want credit control. It used to be frowned upon slightly as a, a as a part of a factoring product. Um, they didn't want um, a third party, in essence, conducting the credit control. Mm -hmm. From a Sonovate perspective, we're, we're different because we're only dealing with recruitment companies and, and consultancies. So we, we talk the recruitment lingo, and it's also because we've got you know north of a thousand agencies um, who have a Sonovate account. It's it's likely that your clients or debtors we're already talking to from another agency. So we've already built up that rapport. We've got that relationship. We know that accounts department already. Um, we're seeing a lot more POs now. Um, and it often an accounts payable department um, won't confirm a balance or, or pay a debt if the PO isn't on the invoice. Now, obviously that's agency specific, whether they have to work with POs or so not. So just for our listeners benefit, that's a purchase order number. Yeah. Yeah. System, yeah. So, so normally what happens is the purchase order might take a couple of weeks to come through and then you assign it to the invoice. But normally that purchase order would relate to the length of the contract. Mm. I.e., you're not getting a purchase order for each invoice. It would relate to the three month contract, for example. And once it's instated, it's in place then. Right, couldn't uh, agree more. And it, quite often, it, there's no incentive once the person started for anyone to give you a purchase order, is there? No, no. You've done the work. So it can leave that invoice in limbo for a long, long time. And there's a really simple solution, which is actually templates for doing things went out of fashion quite a long time ago in the recruitment industry. Yeah. But you know what? Going back to a, an old-fashioned template that is used in a conversational way, but that has uh, a box for, is a PO number required? can be a really useful solution to that and then in fact a lot of the questions that people should be asking about assignments like supervision direction and control if those were dealt with up front we could resolve a lot of issues or eliminate them potentially yeah it's just it's good housekeeping um, mm. Alison it, it's like when you take on a new client and you're using a financier before you go and place 30 contractors with them check that they're credit worthy and that your financier can fund them. Mm. Because I've had it so many times where someone says, Nick, fantastic, I've just landed this this job. I've got 25 guys starting next Monday. I'm like, okay, who with? And they're like, oh, hold on, I'll, I'll, they've only just incorporated. I'll get you the reg number. Well, they've only just incorporated, so they're kind of zero rated only because they are a new company. So we may struggle to get credit. And that's not Sonovate, that, that's any funder. Mm. Um, checking that is a PO required. Well, you can't raise the invoice till you've got the PO get the PO mm -hmm. as soon as you can. Check what terms are on, you know. I've had people who have said, yeah, we've just signed up a, um, a new client, we've got contractors starting with them, and they're on 120 days. Now again, funders don't want to hear things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so, as I say, good housekeeping. Obviously, it's the kind of euphoria of, of, of a salesperson placing contractors, that's great, but just check that it's all provisioned in how the, the invoice will be mm. sent out, collected, remittances, purchase orders, insurance, etc. 
Um, it's interesting because, of course, the the big, great shining hopes for a lot of recruiters is exciting, sexy startups now, isn't it? Mm. So if you work in, say, um, supplying developers or marketing staff, they can have startups can have a huge requirement for those people right from the outset. Yeah. Let's say they're setting up some sort of you know new e-commerce operation, um, they can have what sounds like plenty of funding but no real means of actually settling invoices for quite a while um, and recruiters you're right they do tend to get quite excited about what looks like a high growth option and not dig below the surface don't they okay so check for purchase order numbers use templates where possible credit referencing yep definitely really especially important. if you like you said then if, if you're placing with a lot of tech companies because obviously mm. they've just started out now that they, they will majority of them absolutely grow and scale but unfortunately at that point in time um, they they from a credit perspective will be zero rated however having said that by virtue of the fact that they are a tech company they may have had significant investment go and check that can you get evidence of that the funder will listen to that is there a parent company can you get a parental guarantee etc so it's not always the computer says no scenario um, but give us as much, you, you've talked about due diligence before, give us as much evidence and information and, and collateral on your clients and we can then make a commercial decision on that. Great, okay, thanks. So um, an increasing number of companies that I talk to have during the whole um, run up to Brexit have decided to look at incorporating overseas, different countries for different markets, yeah? What is the effect if you are using funding from a business here in the UK so we are seeing a lot of this and, and you're right and it, it's clearly because of what will or won't happen with with brexit um, so a lot of companies um, more in the kind of IT tech pharma engineering spaces more more white-collar um, are setting up foreign subsidiaries um, and, and to the listeners who, who, who don't know typically if a um, recruitment agency places contractors overseas, it's classed as a, an export debt. So the invoice is being raised from the UK recruitment entity, but it's to a foreign debtor. Um, so you'll be paying them in, in euros, you'll be invoicing in euros, and it's classed as an export debt, of which most funders will fund, but, but only to a degree. But Sonovate have a broader uh, outset on that. Um, and and we, are, we understand that in 2019 there isn't a great deal of difference of placing people in the UK or in let's say the EU mm -hmm. clearly countries of political risk we have to take a view on um, but from an export perspective we, we are very comfortable with that now what people are doing more so though is setting up a foreign subsidiary to remain let's say in the EU so randomly a lot of agencies are setting up in Southern Ireland at the moment we're seeing mm. now from a funding perspective it does get very different because 99% of UK invoice finance, fintech, bank, funders, so to speak, can't fund foreign subsidiaries because legally they don't have jurisdiction to take assignment of invoices raised in a different territory. Right. Now, now, some do, don't get me wrong, um, but they're specific to different countries. So Sonovate, for example, um, can fund in some mainland EU countries we, we can fund uh, US subsidiaries. Mm -hmm. um, we've seen a lot of obviously IT and tech companies setting up in, in the US and, and what fantastic margins they make by the way. Mm -hmm. um, 
but how do you get funding for that so often they will have an office in that in that foreign country um, but their operations are still managed in the UK by their ops director by their FD etc mm. so it's not ideal to have two finance solutions one in the UK and one in another territory so it's definitely worth speaking speaking to me if you have a foreign subsidiary um, in the EU mm-hmm. um, or in the states or, or, or you know just for a chat about what jurisdictions have options for and what don't because it, it is a bit of a minefield mm. the US for example is renowned for um, it's very old school with voice finance so you wouldn't you wouldn't have thought it but it's quite archaic um, the terms are very prohibitive they want two years trading history they want personal security uh, the fees are, are, are extortionate now how can you give two years trading history when you just set up overseas mm-hmm. so it, it, it's, it is a, a problem for some agencies do you then take um, do you use your own cash do you do you fund it off the balance sheet people don't normally want to do that hence why they're using invoice finance do you get an external investment do you take loans but again it's not relative to your to your turnover it's almost a pot of cash that you think you're going to use and you will use without doubt mm. but it's not relative to a turnover whereas with a Sonovate, for example the money that you're you're using from us is relevant to your turnover and your invoices obviously Indeed, yeah. so yes it, it, it it's causing people a solution and yes we are sorry a, a problem um, and yes we are seeing more and more people setting up overseas okay normally owned by the UK company obviously and it, you know obviously listeners if you'd like to talk to Nick about the financing aspect of that or any of the operational launching um, uh, aspects talk to me uh, final question for this episode then Nick um, very quickly what are the key questions that a recruitment business owner should ask themselves or ask the potential candidate when choosing a financing partner? I think the key word there is, is partner. Um, Alison, you, you've worked with a lot of recruitment agencies and the lion's share of them want to scale, want to grow and want to exit, don't they? And to do that, they, they need cash. So I think first and foremost, um, whatever size you are, whether you're new start, whether you're established, um, you know, whether you're at any part of your journey make sure that the finance partner you're with it, it is a partner who can stay with you for the foreseeable future mm-hmm. um, people change finance partners every day um, obviously we see this all the time but you don't want to be doing it all the time ideally so do you have a partner that can facilitate growth or will they have a ceiling that they are only comfortable going to and when I say that they may put a funding cap in once you hit it they will extend that and increase that probably with a fee and probably with provisions that you have to um, put a proposal to the underwriters etc it has to be sanctioned but others may just say we won't fund companies who require funds in excess of an amount of money mm. so I think that's a key one how flexible are they as well you all have heard of concentration limits you know are they going to be prohibitive on your on your debtors that any one debtor can't dictate X amount of uh, X percentage of your debtor book mm-hmm. export that we touched on before will they fund export if so to what level mm-hmm. what's the prepayment they're giving you if they're if they're only giving you 85% for example mm-hmm. but your margins are under 15% then you're not covering your contractors cost are you right. so I think ensure that you're getting the the right facility size or the ability to continue to grow as and when you need it 
the flexibility within the ledger so can they accommodate your debtors and the concentration levels ensuring you're getting the highest prepayment you can um, you know obviously we do a hundred percent you're not gonna get any more than that clearly but we do see people who are getting you know less than what they're paying for mm. um, don't tie yourself into a lengthy contract what you know whilst you don't want to leave ideally your funding partner if you have to but you're signed you're tied up for 12 15 18 months and more sometimes then there are significant penalties to pay to, to leave um, we don't charge any minimum fees so for example when you forecast what your next 12 month turn, turnover will be and, and we give you a, a, a service fee based on that some funders will say if you don't hit the, um, the figures you've said i.e the return we should get then you have a minimum fee of x amount you right so that could end up being very expensive couldn't it? well yeah so you could actually end up paying them fees all year but then you have to top up because you've not hit the the estimated figure that they thought they would receive mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, personal guarantees they are becoming less common in the invoice finance or, or, or abl world asset-based lending world but a lot of funders take them now if you're taking um, capital outside of the debtor book, i.e. A, 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 a cash flow loan or a term loan or something like that, then I think it's fair that you would ask for personal security because there's no asset to back that up. Um, however, if you're taking an invoice finance facility, th- th- they've got a debenture of the business, so they, they own those invoices in essence, so I don't believe you should have to give personal security unless there's a, a reason historically why a funder would want that as, as extra comfort so to speak right so some really good practical tips there um and in short think long term when you enter into an arrangement like this and think what might your business want to do within the course of the next few years is this partner capable of walking that journey with you yeah and what what can they do for you you don't want to have ideally loads of different suppliers you know so sonovate will do your financing they will do your insurance they will do your credit control they'll do your your timesheets if you want. We integrate with your accountancy software via API. Mm-hmm. Automation is a big thing now. People don't want to have too many um, services within the business and, and they want it to be all linking in and, and integrating as well. Everything's on your phone now, isn't it? You know, your accountancy software, your CRM, your financing. Why wouldn't you want it all to integrate smoothly? That's obviously the, the world that we're going into. Um, but the, the services that your funder provides hopefully that will cover everything that you require as opposed to going to market and having to have three, four or five different suppliers right. which basically run your your financing and your contract book. Okay, so I hope that you found that episode um, both interesting and informative. If there's been some issues raised that you'd like to discuss further, um, you're welcome to contact Nick or myself, Alison Humphreys at Recruitment Leadership. Um, This podcast has been produced by Generation Nexus, who will also be providing the contact details for us. Nick, thank you very much for your input on that episode, and we'll see you on the next one. Pleasure, thank Thank you. You've been listening to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe, review and share, so that others can find the podcast too. We really appreciate your support. If you have any questions about the topics covered or wish to find out more about recruitment leadership in Sonovate, please email alison at recruitmentleadership.co.uk referencing the podcast. We're also on LinkedIn where you can follow recruitment leadership and connect with Alison Humphreys.
Thank you for listening and we hope you join us next time for another episode of the Recruitment Leadership Podcast.